Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, everybody, again. Welcome to another edition of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we've got quite a lot of questions, Rory, about Trump um, and the FBI. James Dixon wants to know whether it would be possible to waltz out of a UK government building with classified documents. And, of course, the answer is yes. Very um, usually, yeah. Very usually. And, yeah. and you know, often uh, people take a lot of work home. Very good. You probably remember Angus Lapsley at the Foreign Office. And I do. Very, I do. A, yep. He was a terrific, yep. terrific yep. civil servant with uh, Tony Blair's government in number 10. And, and he got into all sorts of trouble recently because um, he left some, I think it was in a bus stop, without other people leaving them on trains. Um, and, and, and you remember Oliver Letwin got in trouble because he uh, had put them in the bin in St. James's Park. He was yeah. in the habit of walking around St. James's <laughs> Park looking at them. But the thing about ministers, though, ministers don't really get trained in the management of papers. There's an no. assumption that they know what to do. No, so ministers don't get trained. And as you say, even civil servants who are highly trained can make mistakes. So j- just to explain to people what happens is you get an enormous amount of documents on your desk of different sorts, some marked restricted, which is not a very secret, right the way up to top secret. The very top secret stuff, it's pretty difficult to walk out with because usually you have to read that in a special room with a registry clerk watching you unless you're the prime minister. I mean, maybe you and Tony Blair are in a different situation, but as a secretary of state, I sat in a controlled room with a registry clerk who watched me reading the top secret documents and would then remove them from, and every one of them is numbered and they're removed from you before you walk out of the room. That is right. And of course, the, the top secret stuff is usually related to military, diplomatic, quite a lot of economic now. Um, but, you know, in 2014, Roy, they, they, they actually got rid of restricted. When it, in, my, in our time, it was unclassified, restricted, confidential, secret and top secret. Yeah, and it, now there's only three categories: official, yeah, which is about ninety percent of all papers; secret, and top secret. And top secret, you're right that the essentially the sh- you should sign your name on the front cover after you have read it. Um, and I hope I don't get arrested and locked up for this. And I hope Tony Blair doesn't get arrested and locked up for this, but occasionally that didn't necessarily happen in quite the rigor that it should. But I think you have to be very, very careful. And there's this phrase that that does the rounds about the reason for secrecy is because you're trying to guard against what are called threat actors, which are basically people who would do damage to the government, to the state, if they had the information that you're reading. in, In a very straightforward way, one of the main reasons we have it, and it's incredibly important, is to protect agents in the field. So if you are producing agent reports in the old days on Russia, the last thing you want is that report coming up because the report could be used by the Russians to try to work out where it came from and kill them. Yeah, I mean, you literally end up with people getting killed. Um, The other type of documents, though, it is relatively easy to walk out with and you have to be very careful in, in offices when you're a civil servant. When I was a civil servant, we were trained on a clear desk policy. Mm. We had to put everything in a particular safe. It had a combination that had to be locked. 
you would be um, reprimanded. It would be marked on your file if somebody came into your room and found that you'd left documents unattended or you hadn't cleaned your desk properly. That was a big mark against you in the office. Um, but I, I think let's just accelerate to the, the Trump thing for a second. I mean, what do you really think he was doing? Why do you think he took these documents home? Well, apparently when he was in the White House, he was terrible at paper management, uh, constantly. And people say he didn't really read the briefs anyway. There are persistent reports of the, if there were things that he didn't like or things that he thought might be difficult for him, that he would flush them down the toilet. <laughs> um, and then he took all this stuff. There's quite a lot of interest here in France about it because one of them apparently is a, is a sensitive file related to Emmanuel Macron, French president. Uh-huh. Um, now, I guess it's possible that he he thought there's incriminating stuff, maybe interesting stuff, maybe he thought he's going to write books. But the thing is, if you're the president, you can get access to the archive. It's not as if you don't have access to it. But I suspect with him it will be it will be to avoid incrimination. But he's in I think he could be in real trouble. I think there are two theories. The one that I find more difficult to believe, but the Washington Post and others are putting out is that he was hoping to actually sell these documents to make money, that he's short of cash, that he's... What, to the Chinese or the Russians? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the Washington Post wrote an op-ed suggesting he took them because he's hoping to sell them to the Saudis, the Chinese, Russians. I think it's more likely, I mean, what the hell do I know? But I think it's more likely that it's just massive vanity. A lot of these documents, for example, the letter from the North Korean leader, a map of a particular hurricane where he's marked it up in black Sharpie pen. These things sound like souvenirs for him to show off about what he did as president. Or to auction. Or to auction. <laughs> but you know Sandy Berger, remember Sandy Berger, who was Bill Clinton's national security advisor, really big cheese. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and we obviously knew him really, really well, particularly during the Kosovo period and Northern Ireland. He was He left office, and in 2005, he actually got two years of probation and community service for the unauthorized removal of classified material. Uh, and he was a practicing lawyer who had to give up his law practice. So, so, and that's because they, the, the National Archive really takes seriously its commitment, if you like, to history. But it's also been traditionally something used very aggressively politically on both sides of the island of the US. You remember Hillary Clinton got in real trouble for not using her official email address Mm. and using her Gmail instead. And they tried to get her, the Republicans tried to get her on breaking uh, national security and leaking secrets on the basis of using the wrong email. Um, and of course, it really, I think it does sadly help Trump this raid, because a lot of his crazy base are real believers in the idea that there's a deep state conspiracy, that the FBI are somehow, you know, in line with conspiratorial forces at the mm. center. So I'm afraid it's happening at a really unfortunate time. Today is the day, um, so 16th August, that Liz Cheney um, is probably going to lose the primary, almost certainly going to lose her primary at the end of that dynasty. Mm. The, Liz Cheney, remember, the Republican who was prepared to stand up against Trump, had everything going for her in her home state, where her dad was the congressman, where they're basically royalty there. Mm. And the fact is, her and all her dad's friends who were the senators and congressmen, just confirming that they as Republicans would never be able to win a state in Wyoming today, mm. that the Trump party is taking over and yeah. the, the moderate Republicans have finished. Yeah. Well, and the, but that's why, you know, fair play to Liz Cheney and to other, those others who have fought back, because if they don't fight back, 
then, you know, you've got to fear for the future of America. And I mean, the fact that the FBI, this goes back to this thing that we've talked about a lot, where people like Trump, I put Johnson in pretty much the same category, Bolsonaro, there's a lot of talk about Bolsonaro, thinks he's going to lose the election, but he's not going to accept the result. Um, you know, I, th I think we are looking at the deliberate undermining of institutions which generally, by and large, have been respected within their own countries. We're seeing a little bit of that happening to our courts, to our police. But certainly in America, you know, the FBI was physically attacked. <laughs> the headquarters was physically attacked by some of these Trump supporters. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Um, to move you on, Alistair, onto one of your special subjects that I know you oh care a lot God. about. Oh a couple God. of questions. No, no, no. This isn't. This is one that actually works for you. It's not me being mean. Um, <laughs> this is Daly Wilson and Jim Oliver. So Daly Wilson asks, Alistair, England rugby head coach Eddie Jones, recently been rebutted by the RFU regarding his comments on privately educated players lacking resolve. Well. With your work with the British and Irish Lions. So there's two questions and then you'll get on to it. With your work with the British and Irish Lions in 2005, did you have any similar observations that privately educated players lacked resolve? And were there any stark differences between the different nations on how players conducted themselves compared to their education? Maybe do that one, and then I'll give you Jim Oliver from Hoyk. Well, I'll tell you about that. First of all, that's really interesting, that question, because I've actually, I've actually written about this in my new European column this week, defending Eddie Jones. Uh, now, first of all, to tell you, declare an interest. I know Eddie Jones. I like Eddie Jones. And you Eddie really Jones, don't like private education. And I really don't like private education, as you know, Rory. Uh, but I do like, for example, Maro Itoji, uh, big England rugby star, good friend of mine. Uh, and he went to Harrow. Oh, um, gosh. And, and you yes. don't think it, it doesn't affect his resolve? You think he's still uh, a decent Well, I don't player. know because I'm not his coach. But what I would say is I think Eddie Jones was making a broader point about the whole of private schools on English rugby. And the point I've made in my column is what on earth is the RFU doing rebuking Eddie Jones for pointing out a weakness, because it is a weakness, the fact that it's so overwhelmingly dominated by private schools. And the reason for that is something the RFU should be getting into. Just to understand, look, we, we know your views on private schools, which they're yeah. responsible for all the ills of our nation. But no, not the, all of them. Not all of them. <laughs> most of them. But Eddie Jones's claim is more sort of interesting and specific. He somehow thinks the way they've been educated makes them less tough as rugby players. Well, what I would say to that is, look, I saw on the Lions tour four nations brought together, guys who've been you know, battering each other through the season, suddenly trying to be built together as a team up against probably the greatest rugby team in the world at that time, New Zealand, although they're struggling at the moment. And I think I would say that maybe the, the Welsh guys were perhaps, you know, I certainly got on with the Welsh guys really, really well. Uh, and the Irish guys have got on well. I think there is something that maybe they're a bit pampered. I think that's the point he's making. I think he's also making the point that if you go and look at rugby league, as you know, I love rugby league, and unlike you and Nadine Dorries, I really understand rugby league as well. But I, I think if you go and see rugby league players, I think there is something a bit tougher there. Put it this way, he was making a point that a coach is entitled to make, and he should not be rebuked for it. But pr presumably if he thinks particular players are lacking resolve, regardless of where they're educated, he can just drop them from the team, can't he? Yes, he can. He can. But then he, he doesn't have that, that, that big a pool. I'll tell you the other thing that's really interesting about the, the, the event. That I, I did an event with Eddie Jones with the, mili with the military. Yeah. We went and did a talk together with some military. And 
really interesting because they, I could tell when he was talking, they were looking at somebody who doesn't bullshit. He just sort of says things as he sees them. And I think rugby players do like that. Um, and I just thought there was something a bit pathetic about the RFU thinking, oh, no, God, the, the independent schools are going to be a bit pissed off with Eddie Jones and what he said. So they, you know, they literally they put out a statement saying he'd been rebuked. I mean, you know, bugger off. Okay, here we are. So we probably, we don't want to stay on this for too long because this is not the rest is rugby. Um, but, but, <laughs> well, that's just, a, let, that, you let, know, I'm let, sure let, that would do quite well, Roy, just not let, with us let, presenting it. Let, let's, let's just put, <laughs> so I'll just get the Jim Oliver thing, but not as a question, but it's a nice observation. And then I'm going to move on to a question from Chris Ray for you about the Gillian Duffy incident with Dawn Brown. So Jim Oliver just says that he's from Hoyk. Great town on Scottish borders, working class mill town, 15,000 people. Managed to produce 58 Scotland internationals to date with three present Scottish regulars in the team, including the captain, Stuart Hogg. Um, yep. that, I mean, and actually, it's a real reminder how your population size doesn't really determine things. Remember, you know, ancient Athens, which probably had a free population about that size, produced all these incredible Plato, Aristotle, mm. uh, Sophocles, and the rest of them. Um, and of course, New Zealand, as you were saying, produced an incredible number of rugby players, despite being quite a small country. Now, here's a Chris Ray question. You were talking about a blunder that Liz Truss made on her campaign a couple of weeks ago, and it got me thinking, how would you have changed the PR response following the Gillian Duffy incident with Gordon Brown? Can't recall whether Alistair was working with Gordon at the time, but I just wonder in hindsight what she would have done differently following the incident. For younger listeners, uh, Gordon Brown forgot to take off a uh, turn off his uh, recording device, and he walked away from an encounter with a, a lady during the 2010 campaign, and he muttered that she was just a bigot. And it, mm. it actually did a huge amount of damage to him in the campaign, didn't it? How would you have dealt with that? Well, funny enough, I was with Gordon Brown at the time. Uh, ah. I, I was in, I was in a, hotel, a restaurant in Manchester having lunch with my one of my sons, uh, Callum, who was at university there, and also with a friend of mine from Manchester United Football Club. And Gordon had gone on this visit to Rochdale and I was in Manchester because I was waiting for him to come back because we were doing debate preparation for his next head-to-head -head debate. In, and, and my role in the debates was I was David Cameron. <laughs> so I was waiting to see Gordon and I was looking, my phone kept going and it was, and I just, I couldn't be bothered. I wasn't answering my phone unless it was somebody I knew. And it was just lots of numbers, you know, number withheld. So I just ignored it. Uh, but then I thought something is going on. And then, do you know who Jamie Redknapp is? Yeah, yeah I do know who Jamie Redknapp is. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, so then the next, the next thing was Jamie Redknapp's number came up. And of course, you'd always pick up for Jamie Redknapp. You might not pick up for the BBC, but Jamie Redknapp's <laughs> a different situation. And I thought, why? So, uh, so I answered it, and, and, and Jamie Redknapp said these words. He says, come on, Ed how are you going to spit his way out of this one? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, have you not been watching the telly? So, and that was the first I heard of it. The next thing I noticed was... Wait, wait, wait. Before you give us what's the answer to Jamie Redknapp's question? How are you going to spin your way out of that one? Well, I'm going to tell you. So then the next thing I saw was Gordon's convoy going past the restaurant. And I thought, what the hell's going? He's back early. So I finished my lunch, went back to the hotel, and there was Gordon. And he was in a bad way. He was, he was really upset about what had happened. And... When what so when you say what would I have done differently? And I remember it was like getting the old team back together again because Peter Mandelson and I were on a phone call with Gordon and a couple of other people, um, and 
it was obvious to me that Gordon felt deep down he had to go back and see her. I remember lots of people were saying, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. It just kept the story going. But do you know what happened later that day? People might not remember this, but Gordon made us, I think, that night and the next night made the best two speeches of the campaign. Um, and I think what happened was he knew, because it wasn't him, he wasn't, he was, he was angry because something had happened, which he knew because of the way our media works, that was going to wipe out everything that he'd done that day. Um, he was angry because actually we'd been stitched up, to be fair, because what you have, you, you, I don't even know this, Rory, when, when you're out campaigning and stuff and, and, and you, the party leaders, there's a sort of under, unspoken agreement with the broadcasters. They wear, that we get the, the leaders mic'd up, you mic them up, and there's a pool sound. And that's to stop. You know, when you see French elections and there's cam- hundreds of cameras running, everybody's knocking yeah. each other over. In the po- Right. This is so that people can get clean pictures and they can get relatively clean sound. So Gordon, the, and the general rule is that once you're off camera, you're also off sound. Okay. Now, somebody should have taken the microphone off and that's a sort of, you know, that's a mistake. So he was angry he was stitched up. Now, let's he go. Was ang- no, and he was also angry at what he said because... You know, you didn't think she was a bigot. And we shouldn't stay too long on this question, but I, I can totally relate to that because I, when I was very, very early in my time as an MP, I'd given an interview to the Scottish Sun where a Scottish Sun journalist had said to me that he didn't think that there was any poverty in Cumbria and I was in this very wealthy area. And I said to him, no, 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 no. Um, the, this is a, if you get up to the north of my constituency, you'll find there are some and I said, some pretty primitive areas. You'll find old boys up there holding their trousers up with twine. Mm, and, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. And this then came out, uh, I think, nearly six weeks later. I'd sort of forgotten this conversation. I realized that I was repeating a phrase, actually, from a f- farmer. I'd be it, mm. it, A farmer earlier in the day had said to me, you'll see people up north holding their trousers up with twine. Um and I felt so awful. I mean, I've never in my life, I think, felt more ashamed, guilty, horrified, because I think a bit like Gordon Brown may have felt, you feel that you've completely betrayed people who trust you, you're supposed to be on their side, and it sounds like you're against them, you're, you're against them and sniggering about them. I, I remember he also said, uh, I can remember he said, you know, I've just shipped a whole load of votes out. I feel totally responsible. And we were trying to say to him, look, it's bad. There's no point pretending this was what we wanted to happen. But at the same time, you know, people got to remember politicians are human beings. And Gordon, I remember Rachel Kinnock, Neil's daughter, was on was on our, our team at the time. And she, she went to see Mrs. Duffy and she and a colleague went to see Mrs. Duffy and said, look, Gordon wants, Gordon actually wants to come back and, see you and talk this over and yeah. apologize he doesn't think you're a bigot yeah. and, and he just he had to do that at the human level and when he came back he was he was fine again so yeah so that so there's a question how would i have handled it if i'd been there i was there and that's how we handled it and did do you think it cost him the election no i don't and don't forget we won in rochdale right. okay. <laughs> we actually we won that seat look it didn't help it didn't help but no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he did. All right. So let's, I think, take a quick break. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. And coming back, Alison, what's next? Now, here's one. You're going to like this one, Rory. John Church. I'm in Dubai. I'm watching France 24, France 24 on television. Their mm. international coverage puts the UK media to shame. He goes on to say that we do talk a lot about this stuff. But why has foreign have foreign affairs become so sort of downgraded within our media culture? What's your take on that? It's very weird, isn't it? I was I'm in the US at the moment, and I had to take... Uh, little boy to to the doctor yesterday. And on the way back, I turned on the radio and it was the BBC World Service radio, which a lot of people listen to here in the States. And it's fantastic stuff, really good details on, on all the stuff that we, we're interested in. Um, huge shout out though, if people are in Britain and they want something good to, to watch, um, I, this is going to be controversial, obviously, uh, with my friends in the Middle East, but Al Jazeera, fantastic mm. reporting. And much, much more detailed reporting on subjects that we often miss. I, I would recommend if people are looking for a bit of a news update, worth looking occasionally at Al Jazeera. Uh, somebody, Katie Arnold, who I think is a journalist, the name rings a bell. Um, she says, we haven't talked much about Myanmar. 20,000 people have been killed there since the coup. These are war crimes as bad as Putin is doing. So Myanmar is an example a little bit like Afghanistan of great moments of optimism, and then returning back to where we started. So mm. Myanmar was seen by David Cameron as one of the only real foreign policy successes of his time in office. You remember Aung San Suu Kyi had been the lady, Dorsu had been under house arrest for decades. She was eventually released. Democratic elections were held. The military junta that had run uh, Burma on and off since the late 1950s were marginalized. Then she got pulled into the horrors of the Burmese military essentially conducting a form of genocide with the Rohingya population, Rakhine, in, in Western Myanmar. And then she herself was toppled. And she's now under incredibly bizarre, stupid charges about, you know, possessing a, a radio telephone. And they've just extended the, they've just extended the sentence, haven't they? It's absolutely awful. And of course the international sympathy for her is much less because she didn't condemn the attacks yeah. on the Rohingya population. And now the hunter is back and they are really crazy people. They seem mm. almost entirely indifferent to economic sanctions. They are a very, very odd combination of military hard men connected with really bizarre forms of smuggling and all kinds of activities up on the border with very strong Buddhist superstitious beliefs. I remember going to visit the white elephant owned by one of these Burmese generals in Sydney. A white elephant isn't actually white, it turns out very disappointingly. It's a kind of pale grey. Oh. They go to an enormous amount of trouble to try to acquire white elephants. But I thought the point about white elephants is that they don't exist. 
No, well, <laughs> they basically don't exist. <laughs> but but the Burmese generals do their best to procure from all over the world anything that they think looks like a faintly white elephant. So this thing had come in at a cost of goodness knows what from India and uh, was being cared for in a very, very particular sort of temple environment. But as as you say, it definitely was not white. Right, okay. We're obviously getting some very, very distinguished uh, listeners. I'm glad you're getting that, getting into that word. Yeah, it's good. George yeah. Peretz QC. Oh, gosh. Wants to know about our experience of working with attorney generals. How important is the role within government? Do you think the attorney general should be an MP or like Goldsmith, who was Tony, attorney general under Tony Blair at the time of Iraq, a good lawyer who is elevated to the House of Lords? So what was your experience of Attorney General? Mine actually was Peter Goldsmith. And, and I, as I'm, I'm glad to say, as emerged at the Hutton Inquiry, I had very little to do with him. <laughs> Thank God. So um, Dominic Grieve, oh, who was my first Attorney General. Fine I, man. Very fine man. Very distinct. I mean, you know. He is genuinely, I'm going to give you distinguished for him. Dist- you will get, we can <laughs> do distinguished for him, can we? Old-fashioned, thoughtful very high-minded, principled man who David Cameron, I'm afraid, got rid of because he, he found it uncomfortable having an attorney general of quite such kind of extreme rectitude, mm. sort of unbending rectitude. I mean, can we agree that Suella Braverman is just truly, truly awful? I'm afraid she does seem that way, yeah. To, def- to, de- to be the attorney general and defend the breaking of law, domestic and international, by the prime minister is incredible. I mean, incredible. attorney generals are, can be pretty odd in, in every system. You remember... Uh, in the US too, being an attorney general was was often a position that was meant to be taken quite seriously. Mm. And then Donald Trump appointed Senator Sessions as attorney general, who nobody really took very seriously as a legal brain. But then he appointed William Barr, who plays the bagpipes, Rory. Yeah, well, that, then then things improved, obviously. obviously <laughs> at that, if you that have, so the, the answer but, to George Pratt's QC is that attorney generals should play the bagpipes, probably. Now, we've got, a very, we, we've got a question about A-levels, Rory. Stephen Clark, oh, yes. A-levels Blimey. are out on Thursday. Blimey, what yeah. advice do you give to students? But also asking us what A-levels we did. God, blimey. I did French, German, and English. Beautiful. I did history, English, politics, and theatre studies. Oh, of course you did theatre studies, because at Eton, you have two properly equipped theatres, and you have an international filmmaker in residence. Not in my day. I did not have an international filmmaker in (laughs) Peter Bates. Peter Bates, which political reporter did you come closest to punching? Well, of course, I did punch a political reporter once. I punched Mike White once. Oh, my Lord. Famously. No, really? And I really like Mike White. I've always liked Mike White. It was an aberration. It was a Total, total aberration. Yeah. What about you? Have you have you have you, have you ever punched anybody? Uh, I have. Yeah, I have. I have, but I don't admire myself for doing it. Who Some, was I, it? I, Who was it? So I was at a neighbour's wedding in Scotland, and a oh, very, I like this. I love. I love wedding okay, punch ups. A, a very, very <laughs> drunken man started dirty dancing with my girlfriend, and I, <laughs> I, I knocked him down, and I, I really. I've, I discovered two things very quickly. Firstly, obviously, the, the girl whose wedding it was was not impressed. But my girlfriend was also not at all impressed. She wasn't remotely grateful. Why? Was she enjoying the dirty dancing I, or I, what? Well, I don't know. It's just, I, just think, I just think quite understandably people don't like their partners suddenly knocking down another person, whatever they think they're excuse. Even if, I, even if, even if. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, Rory, you've gone way up in my estimation. No, it's not. No, this is this not not good at all. Right? Now, <clears throat> no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I actually got um, an email the other day. Funny enough, about the podcast. Yes, from somebody who actually started it. Dear dirty northern bastard. Oh. And the reason was he'd met me at a football match, also at a wedding where uh-huh. there was a match be- between the two sides during the day, where I apparently was incredibly dirty. Just on a serious point, it was a guy who works with Gus O'Donnell but yes, and yeah. was, tr- was telling us that we weren't giving enough credit to David Cameron for the well-being agenda because actually it is now a very big part of government policy, even if you don't notice it with this lot. Yeah, but there's a problem with it. There's a problem with it. I was thinking about it because I was thinking about this since the last podcast. So to remind people, it's about the Treasury measuring much more than simply uh, traditional Treasury accounts. You look at full well-being, and actually they've also done a lot of work on natural capital, which is trying to take into account environmental considerations in financial policy. But I discovered that there are real limits to it. So when I was the Environment Minister, the first thing that happened when I came into office is the civil servants came to see me, and they said that Almost 60,000 people a year were dying prematurely in Britain, 60,000 people dying prematurely a year because of air pollution. And I thought, goodness gracious me, right? This is something I can sort out. It's going to be my mission as the environment minister. Put together a plan, which was going to cost about £350 million to try to radically reduce air pollution. And we had all these figures based on this well-being analysis, natural capital analysis, showing that it would save billions of pounds a year for the exchequer. And I thought, this is such a sort of no-brainer. Spend 300 million pounds one time and save billions of pounds every year then onwards on all the savings from people not dying of air pollution. But of course, I got nowhere because what the Treasury turned around and pointed out is that the 300 million pounds was real money that I was going to have to take them. And they didn't believe in the billions of pounds which had been calculated through the well-being agenda that that was actually going to come into their tax receipts because the billions of pounds were the value that people put on their well-being, the value that people put on their life. So it's all very well putting these things into the government system. But in my experience, uh, nobody actually acts on them. Well, well this, gen- this gentleman called Will, who called me a dirty bastard, he said, for example, the park run – uh, is 20 times more effect- cost-effective than the National Health Service. And he says he thinks the problem with the wellbeing agenda is actually a problem of comms, which is why he thinks I should be more supportive of it. I am supportive of it as a as an idea. But wait, can I, can I interrupt for a second? I mean, wh- what does he mean the park run is 20 times more effective than the National Health Service? Because the no, problem no, with that... No, no, more cost-effective. In other words, you get more benefit to the, the health of the nation... But so, I, so he's, talking, he's basically saying we need to have a preventive health service, which we agree with. I, I get it. But if you go to the Secretary of State for Health, doesn't matter whether it's a Labour Secretary of State or a Conservative Secretary of State, and say, thank you very much. I'd like to take money from your budget, from the NSS budget, and spend it on park runs because we've got this calculation that it's 20 times more cost effective. You're not going to get the money because nobody believes in these calculations. That's the problem. No, but if you went to, if you went to a, a radical progressive health secretary and said, look, you know, we're spending so much money on health, we've got to look through a different, the other end of the telescope and turn it into a preventive system, you then might have all sorts of ideas like that, which you think are worth that investment. Except what the I, I kept trying to do this. I tried to do it on air pollution. I said to them, "Look, you're you're, you're determined all- to disagree with me here, aren't you?" Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, yeah. I really want to disagree because because no, well, because it it really was where the rubber hit the road. I was saying, "Look, all these people are going to hospital with horrible lung conditions from 
nitrogen dioxide pollution. We could save you billions on the NHS. Give me 300 million pounds so that I can change buses and transport systems to clean air and we can put in a new tax system to get people off diesel vehicles and I'll save you money on the back end and the NHS. And their answer was, Rory, you don't understand everybody is coming to us with these arguments all the time. Literally sure. every, every minister right. is trying to get money out of us, but saying that it's preventative, that it'll save us money in the long run. Well, why do they listen then? Well, that's the big question, I guess. If we really want mm. to fix this, we've got to understand why the Treasury and the NHS doesn't want to listen. And it must be at some level that they find it difficult to believe this stuff. Mm. Now, listen, we've got a critical question here from Marianne. Yep. She said, the only women you ever mention on your podcast are Mrs. Thatcher and Liz Truss. I'm beginning to think that this podcast is a bit of a boys club, which I think is wholly unfair. Now, we're both... I, we, we, we talk a lot about Angela Merkel, don't we? We talk a lot we about talk Angela Merkel. We Angela Merkel. I, I, yep. We've talked a lot in the past about Jacinda Ardern. Grace we, Campbell. We, we talk a lot about Grace we talk Campbell. About Grace Campbell, Gilded yep. Balloon, yep. Edinburgh Fringe. I would love, if I had a dream list of interviewees... Yep. Uh, I'd like Hillary Clinton, Julia Gillard, Jacinda Ardern. So I think that's a bit harsh, that question. Let me add on. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, amazing ex-president of Liberia, would be a wonderful person to get. Absolutely. Love her too. She's very, very, very close to my old boss. Oh, well, fantastic. That's our route. I was about to say, if any listener knew how to get to her. Well, my, my, uh, I've actually had conversations with her through my old boss, so that's that's not difficult. Um, but also, I would love to interview Liz Truss. I'd love to interview Suella Bravema. I'd love to interview Nadine Doris. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, wait, wait, hold a second. On my I, own, on my yeah, own, not with okay, you, Rory, well, so Pete likes to them. Now, listen, I, I've got one here where, because because we do get accused of bit, being a bit too, I don't know, fond of ourselves, Will Wharf, yeah. he said that, he went away from our interview with William Hague, thinking that maybe what he said about the Lisbon Treaty, he had a point. And again, sorry to keep plugging the New European. I wrote about this last week. I actually, I don't know if you read my New European column, Rory, but I actually confess that William Hague kept me awake that night Ooh. because I, I thought about that quite deeply. To just remind people what he said. So what he said is that he felt that one of the things that stored up the pressure for Brexit was the refusal to have a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, and that if there had been a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, the chances are that Britain would still be in the European Union because they would have been able to keep a looser association with Europe. Mm. And the reason why I found it worrying is, I mean, of course, you can't, none of us know, it's a, it's a, it's a judgment and it's a view. I, you know, I would argue that as we, that's where the discussion started when I said I didn't think David Cameron had to have that referendum. He should have had a strategy for Europe. Um, but, the, but the questioner pointed out that the Irish did have a vote on it and it did help to settle the debate in Ireland. Now, Ireland's historically been much more pro-European. Um, so I guess I'm, think, I'm guess I'm thinking maybe he did have a point. Because um, I do, I am quite self-reflective about this whole Brexit thing oh, and whether, you know, whether we actually, you know, I think you agree, yeah. you think this, yeah. that whether the yeah. People's Vote campaign was part of the polarisation, all that stuff. Good, good, good. good. Um, I think we're coming to the end because this is probably the longest question time ever. But let me just finish with a, a question from Jennifer Blackie, oh, um, yeah. who, who's uh, nearly 80. She's one of our older listeners, um, I guess. Um she says, when I was about 15 or 16, so I guess that's, uh, what are that? 65 years ago. years ago. Very good, yeah. <laughs> my grandfather, McNaughton, was down from Scotland, staying with us in London. At breakfast one morning, my mother asked an innocent question, 
Who was at the party night? I mentioned an old family friend who had a new girlfriend called Kirsty Campbell. My grandfather rose from the table, told me in no uncertain terms that I was never to share a table with a Campbell. To this day, I've met many Campbells, but there's always a very slight hesitation in my initial greeting. Well, Luckily, this prejudice died out with a lovely old man with too long a memory. I'm now nearly 80. If you go to Glencoe, there is a pub there where it says on the wall, it says on the door, no hawkers or Campbells allowed. <laughs> and we were up there on holiday and walked in thinking it was a joke and got to the bar and the guy <laughs> recognised me and he says, can you not read? <laughs> <laughs> now, if right. you're going to do history, no, wait a minute, Roy, you're not getting yeah, away. Yeah. If you're going to do history, uh, do you know who Martin Rosen is? Cool. He's a, oh, yeah, he's I a, do. Yeah, the cartoonist. Yeah, He's a cartoonist, cartoonist. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. He, has in, he, he got in touch with this email. Catching up with your latest podcast, I'm amazed by your collective ignorance of history. Canning, which the Prime Minister you claimed to know all about last week, was incredibly important in trying to create a kind of early caring conservatism, no such thing, by the way, after decades of Tory repression under Lord Liverpool. He was also rumoured, I wonder if William Hague knows this, to be Pitt the Younger's lover. And in the 1790s, coerced my great forebear James Gilray into putting him, Canning, into Gilray's satirical prince. Now, here's the bit for you, Rory. Yeah. As to Rory's 32nd cousin, Lord Castlereagh, summed up in Shelley's The Mask of Anarchy. I know this quote. I'm Go something on. like, I met masked murder on the way. It had the face of Castlereagh, something like that. Not bad. Very good, Rory. I met murder on the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. After he killed himself, Byron wrote, oh, so he's cut his throat. He who cut the country's throat long ago, clearly much beloved. And Martin <laughs> Rosen, he, he, he wrote, how do I know this? I just know it, he says, and now you do too. Um, final plug, f- final plug for James Thomas, the man who invented Rest is Politics Bingo. He has added two more pages, Rory, and they are very, very funny. Check them out on social media. Very good. Goodbye, guys. 